I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, Season 2, Episode 4, A Rebellious Last Stand, The Battle of Batoche, May 1885. The Battle of Batoche was the key military engagement of what came to be known as the Northwest Rebellion of 1885. It broke the back of the rebels and ensured Canadian dominance over what would become the province of Saskatchewan. Before we continue, I just want to let you know that you can find us on a number of different platforms. You can find Cool Canadian History on SoundCloud. You can find Cool Canadian History on Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And of course, you can always find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. And if you go to that website, at the bottom of the page, there's a little donations tab courtesy of PayPal. By clicking on this tab, you can donate and support the continuation of this podcast. All donations are extremely, extremely helpful. Now, before we get into the battle, we need to know a bit of background. Now, if you want to learn a whole bunch about the Northwest Rebellion, in a much larger sense, I mean, then please refer back to episode 12 of season 1. But right now, I'll give you sort of the brief gist of everything. You see, in early March 1885, a small group of rebels formed a provisional government. They sought to resist Canadian annexation of what was the Northwest Territories and what would become the province of Saskatchewan. Uh, These rebels were a mixed bag of First Nations, mostly Cree, and Métis, a a term for the mixed-blood French native population of the prairies. Many of the Métis had, in fact, resisted the government once before in what was known as the Red River Rebellion of 1870. Now, the rebels were led by Louis Riel. He was both their spiritual and political leader, while militarily the rebels were led by Gabriel Dumont. Now, generally speaking, the rebel forces were a mixed bag of First Nations warriors and Métis hunters, most with little battle experience, but very tough men used to scraps who were generally crack shots, so snipers and and excellent marksmen. Now, the government forces sent to crush the rebellion were led by Irish-born General Frederick Middleton. He led a mixed bag of Canadian regular soldiers and militia. The militia, in fact, were an interesting mix of units from central Canada and cowboy militia units from the scattered districts of the Northwest Territories. In fact, a small band of cowboys had rode in from Edmonton to join Middleton's counterinsurgency. 
Now, when fighting actually erupted, the rebels were in fact able to inflict a couple of defeats on the government forces at Duck Lake on March 26th, at Fish Creek on April 24th, and perhaps most famously at Cutknife Hill on the 2nd of May. None of these defeats, however, were decisive. Middleton knew that to end the insurgency, he would have to hit the rebels at their headquarters at the village of Batash. And thus, after Cutknife Hill, he cautiously approached Batash with just over 900 men. Dumont and Riel knew that Middleton was coming, and with a force of about 250 to 300 men, prepared for an epic last stand. Now, the rebels' defensive position essentially centered around the village of Batash, and on the heights just south of the village known as Missionary Ridge. Missionary Ridge was named so for the church, rectory, and cemetery that stood above the surrounding area on the ridge itself. The Métis dug defensive fortifications around the area. These were essentially a series of rifle pits and trenches built in sort of concentric circles pushing outwards. These were extremely well camouflaged, where one might not even see the shooter before the shot is fired. You see, the Métis were experts in this type of defensive fortification, due, frankly, to their experience in buffalo hunts. You see, the buffalo hunt was a central feature of Métis society in terms of food, furs, and cultural bonding. These types of rifle pits were used extensively while hunting for buffalo, uh, sort of hidden trenches and hidden rifle pits that the buffalo could not see. So I'm going to put a map up of the battlefield so you have a kind of a sense of what it looked like. But basically you have Middleton's forces that are going to be attacking in a southeast to northwest direction. The rebels are defending the town and the ridge with the river, that is the Saskatchewan River, running along their western flank. So in many ways, Batash would be a siege-like battle. Middleton's forces having to somehow push the rebels out of their rifle pits and into the open. Now Middleton had a plan. He would send a steamship loaded with about 50 men and some artillery up the Saskatchewan River. The plan was that the steamship would land the men in the rear of the rebel lines and then open fire on the rebels with the artillery on board. At the very same time, the main body of Middleton's troops would advance, trapping the rebels in a sort of pincer movement. Now, unfortunately for Middleton, his timing was quite off. His main body of soldiers were, of course, aware that the rebels were expertly camouflaged throughout the landscape, and they moved extremely cautiously towards Batash. Meanwhile, the steamer, known as the Northcote, steamed along at a regular pace, arriving at the village early on the 9th of May. This was before Middleton's main force had an opportunity to engage and provide cover fire for the amphibious assault. Thus, the rebels spotted the steamer and were free to act against it. Now, it's important to note that small arms fire of the rebels, that is, their fire from rifles and muskets, failed in doing any damage to the Northcote but they were eventually able to incapacitate the steamer by lowering the ferry cable that crossed the Saskatchewan River. This cable actually cut through the smokestack and the masts on the ship, and the ship itself drifted harmlessly up the Saskatchewan River, well away from the battlefield. First point to the rebels. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, throughout the rest of the 9th of May, Middleton, who actually was unaware of the fate of the Northcote, and the rebels engaged in on-again, off-again skirmishes. This involved basically small groups advancing until they made contact, exchanging fire, and then retreating. One Canadian soldier wrote how the government forces were, quote, some distance apart from each other, firing at nothing, making guest shots and hearing the rebel bullets zip all around you and the everlasting clack as the bullets struck the trees. Now, Middleton actually had a Gatling gun. This was on loan from the American army, and a Gatling gun, for those at home, was sort of the predecessor to the machine gun. There's this crank, which would be turned by hand, and it would fire off numerous rounds in a short period of time. It was powerful, but not very accurate. This gun was actually operated by a member of the Connecticut National Guard, on loan again from the American army. When movement was spotted in the church on Missionary Ridge, the Gatling gun opened fire on it. This movement, however, wasn't the enemy. It was actually only the pastor and a few ladies from the village taking refuge in the church. After a white flag appeared in the window, the civilians were allowed to leave. No casualties, thankfully. The rebels then sent a small contingent to circle around Middleton's force and capture the Gatling gun. They, in fact, lit a brush fire to cover their movements, but the brush fire failed to spread and the rebel encirclement was beaten back. By the end of the 9th of May, Middleton was actually quite surprised at the ferocity of the defenders. He ordered his men to build and retire to a makeshift defensive perimeter back from the rebel lines, known famously as Zareba. Middleton was now faced with the reality that winning this battle would take a frontal assault against well-entrenched enemy positions. What Middleton didn't know, however, was that the rebels were quickly losing ammunition and men were starting to desert. Middleton decided to thus spend the 10th and 11th of May probing the enemy for weaknesses in their positions. He would do this by sending out a small group of men, often going around the flanks of the rebel defensive lines, while at the same time his main body of troops, as well as his one piece of cannon and the Gatling gun, would pour a heavy fire into the village and rebel positions. By doing this, Middleton could identify weak spots in the rebel lines while, unknowingly, continue to lower the ammunition levels amongst the rebels themselves. By the end of the 11th of May, Middleton was satisfied that the rebels were about to break, and he set the final movement for the morning of the 12th of May. And that morning of the 12th of May frankly saw the rebels in dire straits. Many were injured, extremely exhausted, and running low or even completely out of ammunition. Some rebels were actually hunting amongst the brush to try to find bullets that were dropped by Canadian soldiers. Others were forced to fire rocks, and even some turned to shooting forks. Middleton decided that the final assault would see him lead a flanking attack against the rebels from the east, while the larger main body attacked from the south. Yet confusion assailed this final operation. You see, Middleton's flanking attack was successful in engaging the rebels, but the main body never attacked. In fact, the commander of the main body claimed he never heard the shots being fired that signaled Middleton's flanking assault. 
Middleton returned to his headquarters furious, screamed at his subordinates about not supporting him in the assault, and then retired for lunch. However, Middleton's maneuver had actually paid off. You see, the rebels were forced to move a number of their men to face Middleton's flanking attack. Thus, their main line of defense, facing south-southeast, was now much weaker. And this is where things got a bit odd. At some point, while Middleton was eating lunch, several Canadian units broke into a charge against this now-weakened rebel line. When Middleton heard the noise of the attack and figured out what was happening, he ordered the rest of his force to attack as well. The Gatling gun, the cannon, and the remainder of the Canadian soldiers all supported this wild charge. With a number of rebels in the northeast now running to the sounds of battle, the main rebel line in the south was shattered. Short on ammunition, short on men and exhausted, the rebels fought bravely against this overwhelming assault but to no avail. The battle had now become a fighting retreat. The remaining rebels attempted to make a final stand in the actual village, but the Canadians, aided by artillery and Gatling gun fire, cleared the rebels out house by house. By early in the afternoon of 12th of May 1885, the last rebels at Batoche surrendered to Middleton's force. Both the rebels and Canadians suffered about the same amount of losses, 46 wounded and dead for the rebels, 54 for the Canadians. Gabriel Dumont and other prominent leaders were actually able to escape from Batoche, eventually making their way to the United States. Louis Riel, the spiritual and political leader of the uprising, initially got away but was later captured. He would be tried for treason, found guilty, and controversially executed. A combination of Middleton's cautious probing attacks, a flanking maneuver gone right, rebel supply issues, and finally a random wild charge by Canadian soldiers had resulted in the end of the 1885 rebellion. A reminder to check out our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com, find us on SoundCloud, find us on Facebook, and find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.